All right, we are back. As promised at the top of the show, we're going to have what I hope will prove to be a very interesting guest in this segment, which will be myself. <laughs> to help me with this little bit of chicanery is uh, the former general manager here at KDVS, Stephen Valentino. It's great to be back asking the tough questions, Doug. <laughs> Taking your role bottle as Larry King, no doubt. <laughs> Just softballs for you, hit it, hit out of the park. Well, you know, here on KDVS, we had a public affairs uh, uh, host, uh, Steve Lambert. He was People were calling in with their own questions, with their own stories. He was kind of doing a, a show on autopilot. Well, he would pose the questions, and then people would call into an answering machine and then tell stories and okay. answer the questions. I think it was a very innovative concept for public affairs. Well, inspired I, by the innovations that we constantly try and bring your way here to the listening audience of KDVS. What I thought we'd do at this point was uh, switch chairs. <laughs> you realize this is radio and no one can see us, right? No, but we'll, we'll do the appropriate noises here, <laughs> okay. I think, as we, as we change seats. Okay. I'm standing up. <laughs> I'm walking across the room. Now, I'm sure that I sound different on this mic. Wow, I just feel so much power over here now. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> All right, well. You know, I, I thought it'd be fun just to not have to be the pilot, to be able to sit here, you know. Sit as, back, relax, not have to worry about what you're going to ask people next. And and we should, of course, uh, as a prelude, point out to people that uh, uh, for next week's program, I expect to be in Nicaragua. At a secure, undisclosed location. And uh, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be nice if I can score an interview with Daniel Ortega? Ooh. Well, we'll see what we can do, but uh, I won't be here. This will be a pre-recorded program, and uh, you will be the host. And yes, I, appreciate, I will. Appreciate very much you doing that. So thanks for letting me warm up the seat before I get yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. Drive. You get to basically take the yoke here and fly the plane. Okay. Well, my guest today is Douglas Everett, host of the very popular program <laughs> Radio Parallax on KDVS. Douglas also is an occasional host on Insight on Capital Public Radio. Doug, thank you so much for coming on the program. <laughs> Boy, oh boy. <laughs> Man, that is thick. <laughs> of course, I guess we can also plug at this juncture the uh, public affairs show, which you did host for, and still host for many years here. Stop making sense? Stop making sense. Currently heard on Tuesdays. I'm glad you did your homework. <laughs> but uh, uh, actually, by the time this airs next week, you will be on the cusp of graduating this institution, I understand. I, yeah, I think I'll be out of here. I think I'll have my robe on by that point. Are you going to continue in the quarters to come? Whose interview is this, Doug? Okay. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay, take off. Take over. All right. Well, your, your airplane. You are uh, currently overseas, or not overseas, in Central America. You've done a lot of traveling over the years uh, to many places, right? I think about 70 countries. And you've also you've been around the world. You've been just about everywhere, to every continent except Antarctica, right? Uh, pretty much, yeah. What is the most interesting place you've been? You know, people ask that, and it's, that's too tough of a question to answer. You can name about a half dozen that are pretty cool places, but it's hard to pick one. For example, for example, like when in Nepal, took a trek up into the Himalayas and went up to the, what was the, the Tengboche Monastery, was uh, uh, down the road from Mount Everest. In fact, those of us lucky enough to, to do the hike, get up there, get a bed, and I was I made a point to go in and grab the bed first off <laughs> ahead, of, ahead of the competition. Uh, I was sitting there in a sleeping bag looking out past my feet out the window at Mount Everest, which is pretty cool. But it's hard to compare that to, like, Iguazu Falls, which was also pretty stunning. Now, where is that? Iguazu Falls is kind of the, one of the premier tourist attractions of both Brazil and Argentina. It's on the border between them. Paraguay's just just a stone's throw away. The, the three countries more or less come together at that point. 
And um, it really kind of makes Niagara Falls look like a pretty second-rate waterfall. It is really, really stunning. And in Victoria Falls in Africa is no slouch, but I think Iguazu even did it one better. But tough to compare like a waterfall and a view of, you know, the world's mightiest mountain. So when you're traveling, and you've been so many places, what, when you get to a new place, say a place you haven't been, do you hit like the main tourist attractions or are you right off the beaten path already? I think you want to get a little off the beaten track, but you don't necessarily want to be like eaten by cannibals. So there's kind of, there's kind of a... <laughs> it's a balancing act. Yeah, there's a certain amount of balance involved in the process, but uh, you don't want to be staying in the Hilton. But then again, I remember flying to Cairo once, and I thought, I do thank you want to be staying in the Hilton. So booked one night there just to kind of get, you know, get a feel for the place. Plus, you're kind of jet lagged. So sometimes you should splurge. Sometimes you should not splurge and really try and uh, experience it as the natives do. I think that's the best kind of uh, compromise. Now, you've been, I mean, you've been to a variety of places, first world, third world, um, what kind of preparation goes into, you know, say you're going to a place in, uh, say, Central Africa or someplace? What kind of preparation needs to go into that? You know, you should know a little bit about the lay of the land. And unfortunately, I'd like to put a plug in for, you know, just studying a little bit about geography. Most Americans, they did some study recently. Americans couldn't tell where they were on the globe, like the majority. I mean, it, there's all these different studies. It's very disturbing how little Americans really do know about other places in the world. So you should know a little bit about it. A little bit of basic research. Now with the web, of course, at your disposal, you can learn, you know, so much so quickly. But um, if you're not going to be, you know, like the Club Med kind of tourist, and you know, there's a lot of people who just want to go somewhere and never have to think. And tour companies will charge you a premium dollar for the privilege of just going somewhere and kind of having your own, you know, transport a little chunk of America or American standards somewhere else. Very expensive, not really real world at all. It could be nice, you know, going to the beach and places like that. I'm sure, you know, I mean, it is nice, but it's just not experiencing that country as it is. So, I mean, if you don't want that kind of experience, and I don't, I don't really recommend it. That's not the kind of traveling I like to do. It's great for some folks. But, um, you know, Lonely Planet is a wonderful, there's so many resources now for the person who doesn't want to spend a fortune, wants to go somewhere, have a good time. Uh, economically, there's a lot of resources available. The Lonely Planet series when I took off in 1987 for like a year, went around the world. I had eight Lonely Planet books in my backpack. <laughs> and it was good because there's a lot of places you couldn't buy them. So it was it was worthwhile having. That company has just put out really wonderful, I don't know how many books there are in there. There's probably a hundred of them. Various places to go, regions to go. If you read up on what they've got to say, uh, you'll be pretty well informed. And they, again, tend to focus on more off-the-beaten-path type things? They very much do. They tend to be sometimes a little down on, you know, enjoying the premier tourist attractions of a place. Like, oh, everyone does that. And, you know, it's crowded with a bunch of tourists. Well, because it's a really nice thing to see, so that's why people go there to see it. They get a little bit snotty about that once in a while, but, I mean, by and large, they're just a goldmine of good information. So I'd recommend anyone out there contemplating chips in the future. It's, you know, they're, they're a good resource. You hear a lot about, well, the ugly American. Yeah. Is that a true perception? When I went on that long trip, you know, I was like 34. I didn't have a mortgage, didn't have a wife, didn't have a house, didn't have a dog. I thought this is a good time. Still don't have like four of those things, right? <laughs> well, who's counting? <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did have a wife for a while, but I should launch into Rodney Dangerfield. Ooh, but I tell you, it was yeah. You know, my wife she coming out of two days of sex a month. I was lucky. A couple guys I know she cut out completely. 
But no, I, 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 I was able to take off at that time, paid off my debts, and it was really the funnest thing I ever did. So everyone out there in your 20s, in your 30s, think about clearing a path to do that. It may take a year or five years to do it, but I think that you'll enjoy an experience, you know, when you're relatively young, even without a lot of money, more than you might when you're, say, 70 years old. It's hard to go sleep in a treehouse or sleep on a beach when, if you're 70 years old, let's face it. But I thought I'd see the, the ugly American everywhere, and to my surprise, the Americans that I met traveling the way I did were just really a great bunch of people. They really were. So where did you meet the ugly American then? Was it in those articles? I, I, honest, did you not I meet didn't. I didn't. I, very, I can't say that I met the ugly American. There was one point at a party somewhere in, in uh, Thailand or something, and one guy was just being an obnoxious, just full of himself, talking about how it was like this and how it was like that. And I kind of looked at someone else and said, you know, that's the kind of American that gives us a bad name everywhere. The guy looked at me and said, he's Canadian. <laughs> I mean, you hear a lot about Americans traveling overseas, though, I mean, you know, claiming to be Canadian, and maybe that's, you know. <laughs> well, these days, I think yeah. I would sew a maple leaf onto my back. In fact, I may sew a maple leaf onto my backpack for travel currently. A lot of a lot of America's foreign policy gaffes, shall we say, are not sitting well with the rest of the world, and, uh, you know, it's easy for me to see why. But has that, I mean, has the reception you've received changed? In, I, you know, I can I the last five years in all the travel I've done up till recently up till this year last year I I am I'm really hard pressed to think of any time where being an American caused anybody to sneer or to 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 give me a negative reaction. The American people I think are in the minds of most people in the world different than the American government. I think Americans by and large are liked everywhere, but the American government's policies may be you know abhorred just about <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> everywhere. I mean, I've had experiences, you know, interacting with foreigners where these like foreign policy questions do come up. You can't necessarily escape it. So it, how do you do you dance around it or do you just well, I think out? if someone objects to, like, say, the war in Iraq and I thought it was an idiotic, horrible, ridiculous idea, which we made, you know, we took a great pains to express that point of view on this radio program again and again and why. Uh, someone brings up the, the, the war in Iraq. I just say, look, I did everything I could to make sure that we didn't go down this foolhardy path. So I'm not uh, I'm not supporting the American government. So I don't think that people then, you know, look at you the same way. It's easy to see getting you know kind of testy with people if if you're a if you're you know Rush Limbaugh type Bush supporter. But that's that's my not case. you. That's not me. And so uh, I don't have the problem. Out of curiosity, what 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 kind of encounters did you have? Well, I mean, it's the same kind of situation where you're you're interacting, and this is mostly with uh, foreign exchange students. But you know, issues about the war and issues about our foreign policy come up. And from my experience with a few people has been it's your government, this, your government, that, and it's been harder for them to separate the two. Well, I, um, I'm kind of a little surprised to hear that. I think most people realize that, you know, uh, that they are different from their government. They don't control what their government does. And that if someone is objecting to the policies of like the French government and he's a French citizen, well, he didn't, he's not responsible for those policies necessarily. Let's, let's shift gears here a little bit. Um, <laughs> things a little bit lighter. I'm sure you've flown some interesting airlines over the years because some of the destinations you've been to are not exactly, you know, uh, first class United Airlines or, well, maybe well, that's not the best example, but. Well, yeah, well, yeah, maybe not. But I, I, I do remember going to East Africa and I, I, uh, I maybe, maybe, maybe from studying anthropology right here at UC Davis. Always thought if I get near Madagascar, I, I have to go there. 
And as it turned out, I, I did take a flight from Kenya to Madagascar, and some uh, Americans were sitting next to me, and, and it turned out they were primatologists from the University of North Carolina. And uh, they said, why are you going to Madagascar? And I said, well, I, I'm an, I want to go see some lemurs. <laughs> Just looked at me like, you've got to be kidding. You actually want to go see lemurs? And i like, how can you come to this part of the world and not want to go see lemurs? And they thought that was a pretty good answer. So they were, they were pretty happy about that. But the airline in question, uh, I believe at the time, had one Boeing 707, aging Boeing 707, which was a commercial airplane for Air Madagascar at times, and at other times, it's the president's Air Force One. (laughs) He basically, whenever he feels the need, borrows the airplane for state visits. It was at least in good condition, then, I would assume, Uh, the president of Madagascar. I I didn't, it's an old plane, I was a little dubious, and... And one time we took a flight from Irkutsk in, in Siberia to Moscow, and I tell you, the Russian aircraft <laughs> did not inspire confidence. It was almost it was almost something out of the Borat movie because they had, I think we had a big KGB agent sitting next to us, and when they came to for like, now no one expects airline food to be really good, but when they hand you the paper bag and it's got big grease stains on the side... <laughs> You know that the Soviets had a ways to go in, in you know, airline service. But the worst, uh, but the worst had to be, I think, uh, Burma, the national, the air carrier of Burma, which I think was Burma Air, Air Burma, I forget. But It's not t- called Burma anymore, right? It's called Myanmar now, and the capital Rangoon is now called Yangon. I, it's hard to, it's hard to keep track. Well, okay, going on with the airline, though. You know, at that time, Air Burma, I believe, when I was there, had lost... Two of their four aircraft, which, which, which I thought was you know, a, a truly brave traveler is someone who will roll the dice on Air Burma when they've lost fifty percent of the fleet. <laughs> so I, you know, I did. I I went by train. How was? was oh, there. you didn't take yeah, it. Took took the train. What were the cultural experiences that took you by surprise in some well, of the places you visited? Um, we've all seen pictures of rickshaws. Right. Okay. A man pulling a cart with large wheels, like wagon wheels, like, you know, something out of the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Those were still used as taxis in, in Calcutta. So when I got there and I saw these, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. How much do you tip on that? Well, I, I don't, <laughs> not a lot. I mean, believe you, believe me. I, and I, that was that's an interesting, interesting story because I got there to, the Lonely Planet series had referred uh, me to one hotel in particular that I thought attracted my attention run by an elderly, eccentric British couple. Which, oh, my. Which, which, unfortunately, they were full. But they directed me to a, that's, that's, that chap over there, I believe, needs someone who might be able to stay with him. You might want to speak with him. So there was this big red-headed kid from, like, the UK. And I, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I could use a roommate for a few days. And he'd been working with Mother Teresa for, like, the last six months. So he was going back to, the, back to home. He was going back home after this stint here. And so I thought, I'd got to talk to this guy about what his experiences were like so the, as we're talking he says, let's go out for some dinner and first thing he does is like hails a rickshaw and i'm looking <laughs> at him like you've got to be kidding me and he goes oh believe me they want you as a fare because first of all you're not going to kick them and you're going to probably pay about five times or ten times that everybody else is around here even though it's only like a buck or something a buck or two so you're a prime fare he goes i use them you should use them so we climbed in the rickshaw and this guy grunts and pulls, and next thing you know, we're being you know pulled down the streets at Calcutta in this thing. It was a little bizarre, 
But, uh, you know, he went in Rome. And, I, you know, the guy did get a good fare. He was very happy when we gave him, like, the 30 rupees or whatever it was. Now, how are the shocks on a rickshaw? Not they... good at all. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the Coney Company could probably make a killing if they could rig one of those things up with a little shock absorber. <laughs> I think that book, uh, actually, City of Joy, talks about uh, one of the characters is a rickshaw operator mm-hmm. in India. And they run barefoot. Really? Yeah. And they run in the mon- in the monsoon, which I can't imagine when the water's in the streets. They're running barefoot through like streets full of water with like rusty tin cans below, and yeah, I mean it's like it's it is it's something that's hard to conceive of here in America. I'm guessing they spend a lot of money on tough actin tenactin. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> dying of tetanus is a real concern over there, you know. And they, India loses like thirty thousand people a year to tetanus, something like that. But they don't they don't give injections and. Part of it is they pack wounds with cow dung. Not a recommended practice uh, by American standards, and that gives them some of the, the Clostridium tetani bacteria in the wound, and then they, they get tetanus. But I, you know, I'm not, I, would, I would do the rickshaw again if I went back to Calcutta. I, it was like it's just something that it's, it's shocking. It seems weird, but it's part of the culture there. The Indians all use them. I mean, have you been in a place at maybe a time of catastrophe crisis or you know there's a lot of political unrest no when when there's a countries that are having in the middle of a crisis or catastrophe are probably worth avoiding at that particular time uh but uh, a lot of countries got real bad governments i mean burma was the burmese for example the burmese people nicest smilingest seemingly happiest people i think i've ever met anywhere and yet their government is terrible their government has imprisoned the the woman that really won the election uh, a decade or so ago uh, on Song Su Chi. She's been in jail because the government didn't like the fact that she won the election, so they put her in jail and invalidated the results. But you think Florida 2000 was bad? I mean, this <laughs> is like, they just pretty much, at least Al Gore didn't have to go to prison. Well, but, I mean, you hear things about, you know, like an American tourist trapped in a Turkish prison. Is that a fear for you? I mean, do you like research the local laws before you go there? Well, or it's, how yeah, do you... it was a good policy. I wouldn't recommend trying to, to smuggle large quantities of, <laughs> of hashish out of a country. That's, that's probably, a good, okay, that's good a point. Good, good starting point. Yeah, I mean, some countries have really tough drug laws. Malaysia. But having said that, I remember being in, uh, in, I was in Indonesia, I guess, and this crazy American lawyer was over there, and he says, "You want to, you want to smoke some, uh, smoke some Thai bud?" And he opens up this this briefcase. He's got like this sizable amount of of Thai stick marijuana in this thing, and I'm like, "Where'd you get that?" He goes, "Oh, I, I brought it in," and like <laughs> like you brought you brought marijuana into into Malaysia. And he's like, well, yeah. He goes, he goes look, look, you got to understand. They're going for a big drug dealer. Those are the ones they have the death penalty for. There's no way I get the death penalty for this. I'm thinking like, well, you're a lot braver and dumber man than I is all I got to say. Well, maybe there's a, a bit of an association here, or a bit of a natural jump from the last topic to this topic. But <laughs> food. I think that you should try to some of the delicacies they have in different places and just different foods. I mean, we got, in, America, in America, we're lucky because we have all nationalities, all different food types. But but I'm thinking of like um, one time in South Africa. Actually, it was in Botswana, which is the country right above South Africa. I'd read years before that one of the major sources of protein there is the caterpillar migration. The caterpillars come out in huge numbers, and the people of Botswana gather them up, dry them, fry them. Grind them up into high protein powder, and this is actually a substantial part of their diet, apparently. 
in Botswana. So I, when I got there, I noticed people were selling on the sides of the road these what looked like little kind of these things look kind of like brown curly fries, but mm-hmm. they were the fried caterpillars. And people would walk up and buy a few and walk off with them, like you know, like you buy potato chips. So well, I how thought, were they? Well, I, I I felt I needed to find out, so I went over and took like a ten pula or whatever it was, a little coin, and handed it to the little lady in the street, and she hands me three of them. So I'm contemplating what to do, looking down at this thing, and this this guy that looks like something out of central casting, you know, from the from like a Rudyard Kipling era, you know, straight mustache out, comes walking <laughs> over, looks down at me and goes, They're worms. They eat them. <laughs> and I looked at him and said, well, What do they taste like? I don't know. I don't eat worms. <laughs> so what did they taste like? Uh like French fries, kind really? of with, with crunchy heads. <laughs> they had a little added spice in them, but they they weren't bad. You know, they don't they'd catch on in America, but uh but they weren't bad. What are some of the health precautions that you would recommend? Because you've been to places that don't I, have the most first rate health care systems, I no, would imagine. I remember getting scabies in Cuba, but uh, these things happen. But you need to, if you're going to go to malarial areas, you need to take the pills. You need to take, uh, some countries won't let you in unless you've got like a yellow fever vaccination. So you do all that research beforehand. Um, you don't have to be a medically trained person just to kind of use some of the sensible precautions you'd want to you'd want to use. You be careful about the water, careful about the food. You want to eat like cooked vegetables. Those are usually pretty safe. Uh, or one, one trick from medical school I thought was one that might be useful for some of our listeners someday you find yourself in a foreign country you got no bottled water handy uh, most of the water heaters in your hotel will get the water hot enough to kill the pathogens so if you're thirsty at night don't draw yourself a glass of cold water if you're in a shady place get a glass of warm water and let it cool off and by the time it cools off and it's drinkable it's probably be safer than something out of the out of the cold tap Mm-mm. but you should probably have iodine with you all the all the usual stuff a little bit a little bit of your basic homework will probably keep most people out of trouble and I, and I would recommend, as we close, that uh, we that I think everyone should just try and travel more. Americans, something like one-fourth of Americans have passports. It's an astoundingly low number. The, the vast majority of Americans do not have a passport, and uh, which means they don't, they don't travel. You know, I don't really count you know, going across the border into Vancouver, B.C. or Tijuana as like getting out of the country. So I would really encourage everyone to do it. It's a wonderful experience. Well, Douglas Everett, thank you so much for uh, letting us switch chairs today. I get to interview you. <laughs> well, let's do it again. This is kind of fun. And, uh, yeah, we'll hand things back over to you for the next segment. All right. Well, Steve, thanks. Thank you, Doug. Somewhere beyond the sea. Stands on golden sands and watches the ships that go sailing somewhere beyond the sea. She's there watching for me. If I could fly like birds on high, then straight to her arms. 